When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I go to this meeting with my passion and <laughs> notes and ideas and thoughts about why I absolutely have to play Louise in this movie. And uh, he's listening and I'm pouring my heart out and then he finally says, so in other words, you wouldn't play Thelma? And there was only like a slight pause before I said, you know what's so interesting? <laughs> Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen, and that was Gina Davis. I love Gina Davis. So she was basically, in the 80s and 90s, the star in some of my favorite movies, Kristen. Like, badass catcher Dottie in A League of Their Own. She was Barbara, the, like, adorable face-contorting ghost in Beetlejuice. And, let us not forget, she was Thelma to Susan Sarandon's Louise. You robbed the store? Come on! Ah, the goddamn store? Well, we needed the money! Oh, not like I killed anybody, for God's sake. Thelma! But Caroline, what a lot of people probably don't know about Gina Davis is all of the work that she has been doing in the past decade plus behind the scenes in Hollywood. She had noticed the absence of women and like full female characters in kids programming. So what did Gina Davis do? She launched in 2004 the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. And this organization has been responsible for some of the most important groundbreaking research on representation on screen, not just into gender, although gender is a huge part of it, but into representation of people of color, of LGBTQ characters, the whole gamut. Because essentially, Gina Davis is like, we got to move this past just having white men star and everything. And Caroline, I feel so much of an unladylike kindred spirit with Gina Mm, because she knew she needed the data. Yes. To really prove her point. And Caroline, you and I love some facts and stats. We've actually relied on research from Gina's Institute for years in our feminist podcasting careers. And all of this really paved the way for the Bentonville Film Festival, which she co-founded in 2015. And their whole mission is to really, like, put into practice the Gina Davis Institute's motto of if she can see it. She can be it. So when the Bentonville Film Festival (laughs) reached out to us this spring and said, oh, hello, would you like to come and interview Gina Davis? You and I were like, let's Google Bentonville. Where is that? (laughs) (laughs) While we were saying, of course, yes. So we were thrilled to get to talk to six-foot-tall Gina about what it's really taken to not just claim her space in Hollywood, but also, now in her early 60s, really make space for more women and people of color, both on screen and behind the scenes. And Caroline, even though Gina is a Hollywood icon these days, growing up, she actually wanted to take up less space. 
Yeah, we started our conversation talking with Gina about her early years as a shrinking violet. And with that, y'all, let's meet Gina D. Hi. Well, first of all, thank you so much to the film festival and to Gina for inviting us here for a live podcast recording. Um, We are thrilled to be here. We are thrilled because uh, Gina Davis is one of our favorite rule breakers. So naturally, we want to start out by asking you, when you were growing up, what did baby Gina want to be? And, and what do you still want to be when you grow up? Uh, uh, when I was three, evidently, I announced to my parents that I wanted to be in movies. <laughs> uh, and my goal never wavered. Uh, that, that was it. The only other thing I pictured wanting to be was uh, wrapping packages in department stores. <laughs> I love, you know, you take them to the special window and they wrap the presents and I thought, I thought that would be the best job. Are you good at present wrapping? I'm very good at present wrapping, <laughs> yes. so bad. Really good at it. You could, I'd be happy to wrap your presents for it. <laughs> Excellent. I have a good connection now. But no, that's, that's what I wanted to be. That's what I, I studied acting in college, and that was it. So, but, and, and so what do, I, what do I still want to be? Well, you know, I, I love acting. It's absolutely my number one passion. Uh, I would like to keep... I don't have any particular goal there, except I'd like to keep being offered really cool parts and get to play them. Um, so, so that's great. So the theme of this talk is claiming your space, and we're going to get literal for a minute. Tall woman to tall woman. Uh, It's fine. The short person's in the middle. (laughs) Sorry to look right over you. Just look look across. So we were curious, do you remember when you first kind of became aware of your height as a girl? Yeah, always, always was aware of my height because I was very tall from the beginning. My Kindergarten, graduation picture, and high school look exactly the same like this. <laughs> One big, tall person standing out. Uh, and so I was always very aware of it. I felt very self-conscious and shy. My mother would not let me uh, slump my shoulders. So I found ways to, like, to stand other ways to be shorter, you know, I, like sway my back and lean on things. Uh, Why is that girl Gina always leaning on things? Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, my dream growing up uh, my, it was uh, to take up less space in the world, but I just felt like I was taking up too much space. And uh, my favorite fairy tale when I, when I was little was this picture book with a, a princess who's only a foot tall. And these three princesses are trying to win the hand of the uh, prince. And they have to do these tasks <laughs> in order to impress him, and one was to make a shirt, and one was to cook a meal, and one was to clean the house or something. So the, the tiny girl made the best meal, although very small. <laughs> and she made the most beautiful shirt, although very small. And so uh, I was like, I want to be her. Uh, but anyway. Well, so did growing up taller than the boys in your class, the boys around you, did that really shape at all how you interacted or communicated with men as you got older? No, 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 no. There was no confidence around men. No, no, no. Uh, I never had a date in high school. Um, and then I became, a, I, 
was a foreign exchange student to Sweden my senior year in high school, and they're kind of taller. And uh, <laughs> and when I went there, they said, "Oh, you 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 must have had a lot of you've been very popular at home and had a lot of boyfriends." I'm like, "Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. I'm very, very so attractive to everyone." <laughs> yeah. As you're leaning against a wall. <laughs> yeah, so popular. Were there, uh, you know, your mom didn't want you to slouch, which I feel like that's a very mom thing. Were there other, like, ladylike rules that you were expected to follow? Yes. You know, I, they really stand out in my mind, these incidents where, in hindsight, I realized how kind of tragic the, the message was. that, uh, And one was uh, my beloved aunt, uh, who I wanted to be like in every way, said at some point, you're going to have to work on that laugh because boys are not going to find that attractive. Can, can you just um, give us an idea of the laugh? No. <laughs> but it was loud and free-spirited, evidently. Like a laugh should be. Yeah. Like a laugh should be. Um, there was uh, a junior minister at our church who was talking to me on the sidewalk one day, and he said, see, this way you are right now, this is very lovely and wonderful and I think you would be you know more attractive to boys if you could be more like this instead of you know you're kind of big and and loud sometimes and you know I think you should really if, when you're toned down like this you're really you know <laughs> it's weird everybody was really trying to get me to be much more of a shrinking violet than I already was it was crazy well so we have to get into um one of your most beloved roles, which is obviously in Thelma and Louise, you hustled to get that role. Like, you were determined to get it. So I'd love to hear, like, why and how that changed your life and career. Right. So, uh, so somebody slipped me the script. They said, there's this script floating around town with the best parts ever written for women. You got to read it. And I read it. And I was like, oh, my God. And it really was the best script I'd ever read. And, P.S., it won the Oscar and the Golden Globe and the Writers Guild Award for Best Screenplay. So, and it's taught in colleges now, actually. So I wasn't wrong about thinking it was the best. And uh, I got to be in that. I call my agent, and he calls to find out that it's already been cast. Oh, my God. So uh, we keep track, though. You know, maybe something could happen. It could fall apart. And a couple of months later, it did all fall apart. So the ultimate director, Ridley Scott, was at first just the producer, and uh, there was a director, and he picked his Thelma and Louise. And then that, that all fell apart. And they hired a new director. And then my agent called and said, can Gina meet the new director? No, he already knows who he wants for Thelma and Louise. And then it happened a third time. So there were three <laughs> sets of Thelma and Louise before it was me and Susan Sarandon. Uh, but this took a year, all this happening. And every week, my agent called... Ridley's office and said, just so you know, Gina's still interested. <laughs> and during this time, I was so obsessed with the script. I read it a thousand times. I just have to be ready in case, you know. So then finally Ridley says, yes, I'm going to direct it now and I'll meet with, I'd be happy to meet with Gina. And so I go to this meeting with my passion and, <laughs> and notes and ideas and thoughts about why I absolutely have to play Louise in this movie. And uh, he's listening, and I'm pouring my heart out. And then he finally says, so in other words, you wouldn't play Thelma. And there was only like a slight pause before I said, you know what's so interesting? 
obviously I'm listening to myself as I'm talking to you, and it doesn't sound right anymore. You know, I actually think I should play Thelma. <laughs> and then I just made shit up about why I had to be <laughs> Thelma. And then I was Thelma. <laughs> Uh, so Gina Davis rolls with the punches. I like that. Um, Kristen, do you remember the first time you watched Thelma and Louise? Oh, Caroline, I feel embarrassed to say this. What? The first time I watched Thelma and Louise was on my way to Bentonville, Arkansas. <laughs> hey, hey, you got a late start with some pop culture well, stuff. Well, look, so Thelma and Louise came out in 1991. Yes, we were babies. We were babies, but also I was a baby in a very conservative home, and Thelma and Louise ain't <laughs> no way that my conservative Christian parents were going to be down with that jam. So I had really never seen it. I also remember, even with, like, A League of Their Own, I remember my mom thinking that, like, A, Madonna was in it, so, like, that was scandalous, and, like, Rosie O'Donnell's in it, and she's so sarcastic. So <laughs> I really did not grow up... Like, with these films. But I tell you what, Thelma and Louise could have just been made, like, this past year because I was watching it as, you know, a 34-year-old woman. And it felt just as fresh as a spring day. And by that, I mean very us against the patriarchy. Like, ride or die. And, you know, the amazing friendship that Thelma and Louise had really played out behind the scenes, too. So next up, we're going to talk with Gina about how working with Susan Sarandon legit changed her life. Yeah, we're not exaggerating. So stick around. We're back with our new best friend, Gina Davis, talking about Thelma and Louise, live from the Bentonville Film Festival. What was it um, about that screenplay in particular, when you read it, that grabbed you? You know, it just seemed like the characters were so well-written and that it had two lead female characters was very extraordinary. But in hindsight, I've realized that that what was so arresting about it to me was that they take charge of their fate and remain in charge the entire time. And that's why the, the driving off the cliff, oh no, I gave the ending away. <laughs> Spoilers. Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go. It's, it's a metaphor for retaining control of your life no matter what. You know, I'd rather die than give up control of my life. And so I think that's why people find it so inspiring. You know, it was kind of mystifying at first that women could come out of a movie where the main characters kill themselves and be like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I feel empowered. It's fine, yeah, empowered or slash. I just watched it again about a year ago and was just sobbing, just weeping. It's so good. Um, But the gender politics around it really caused a stir. And there was this Time magazine uh, cover with y'all both on the cover And it was, why Thelma and Louise hits a nerve. Were men really as outraged about the movie as that article kind of suggested? No. No, they weren't at all. Uh, (laughs) I mean, certainly some men were and and took it personally. Mm -hmm. And what what was interesting was 
if I were in an interview or something, if I was asked, you know, this is, this is bad for me, you know, negative for men or something, I would give a long answer about, well, you know, if you think about it, there's, there's seven men and only two of us, and, and uh, one is, you know, wonderful, and, and then the other one is fantastic and sexy, but a little bit of a criminal, and, you know, but so they cover all the bases. And, uh, <laughs> but then I heard Kelly Corey, the writer, being interviewed, and uh, they asked her that, and she said, so what? And I was like, oh, you could say that. Oh. She's like, women have been objectified in every movie, and so too bad if the guys don't have good parts, you know? And I was like, well, that's probably true. So we have to ask, of course, about Susan Sarandon, because it seems like in terms of claiming your space professionally, oh, yeah. she was such a influence. Could you talk about that? Such a, you changed my life, you know, the, the movie did and, and working with her. The first time I met her, we had both been cast and Ridley said, let's the three of us just get together with the script and we'll just go through it and see if there's any changes anybody wants to talk about. And so I had some tiny, maybe five little things, uh, maybe change a line or whatever. And I planned out beforehand the most girly possible way to bring these things up. Like, okay, this one, I'll make it as if it's a joke. And maybe he'll say, but that is a good idea now that I think about it. <laughs> or I'll try to make him, this one, I'll try to make him think it was his idea. And this one, I won't bring up now. I'll, I'll wait till later because that's too many things to bring up on the same day. <laughs> and anyway, so I, I go in there to this meeting and we sit down and open the script, and I swear on page one, Susan says, you know, this first line I have, I don't think we need that. Let's cut that, or we could put it on page four. And I was like, a gape. I couldn't believe it. And, and he's just reacting perfectly normally, like, oh, yeah, well, that, well I don't know. Let's think of whatever, you know. And they, we go through the whole script, and, and it's like that. And uh, I realized later, I've never seen a woman behave like that. I had never heard a woman ask for things without starting with, I don't know what you think. This is maybe a bad idea. But what if we, well, of course, we don't have to. But, you know, and that's how I lived my life. That was, that was everything. Uh, but mostly I wouldn't even begin to ask for anything. So spending three months with Susan every day, all day, was an incredible Education. I'll tell you a funny story about one thing that happened while we were while we were on the set. We we, we had been um, shooting a scene in the morning, and we're all walking to lunch. And Ridley's next to me. He says, "You know, I was wondering in the scene we shoot this afternoon. You guys are driving, and you're just feeling, you know, fabulous, and you're feeling great and free and wonderful. What if you were to sit up on the back of the, your chair seat in the car, and you just..." Yay, and you whip your T-shirt off. <laughs> and, like you do. Like one does. <laughs> well, I mean, I could sort of see a little bit through his thinking. But anyway, so I'm just frozen completely. And I say, uh, you know, I think they need me to have lunch. So I think I should go have lunch now. And what I really wanted to do was go find Susan. <laughs> and so she's already eating. And I, I run up and say, Susan, Susan, Ridley wants me to take my top off in the next scene. She goes, oh, and throws down her silverware and goes over to Ridley and says, Ridley, Gina's not taking her top off. 
it just comes back and goes back to eating. And I was like, oh, I wish I could be like that. Well, tell us a little bit about like the, I don't know if it was fear, but just the feeling kind of holding you back in the first place in that regard. And then maybe how you felt differently after that. Well, I was raised, and I don't think necessarily because I was a girl, I was raised to be so profoundly polite. Mm -hmm. It was the furthest you could take it. Like, um, I could never say yes if I was at somebody's house and they offered me something. (laughs) Even if they had a cold glass of water poured already and they held it out to me, I had to say, no, thank you, I'm not thirsty. Uh, because you, we, weren't, we weren't supposed to be any trouble to anybody. Never, never confront anybody. And uh, I almost died of politeness, uh, <laughs> literally, uh, because I had this great uncle who was 99, but he was still driving. And we went out to dinner with uh, him and my great aunt and my parents and me. And uh, we're driving home, and he keeps kind of drifting into the other lane, but then drifting back in time, and then drifting over, and nobody's saying anything. And then finally, he drifts over and just stays half in the other lane of the oncoming traffic, and there's a car coming. And nobody says anything, and then my mom picks me up and puts me in the middle, so I'll be killed less than, than her. And... Nobody says anything. And then finally, at the last second, his wife says, a little to the right, Jack. And he just moves. But we, and my, my parents would have died rather than simply say, could you, you know, steer it a little to the right. Literally would have rather died. With a rather, that would be, I mean, it's hilarious, but oh my God. So that's how profoundly difficult it was for me to ever say anything or complain about anything or even uh, dating. I drove men crazy or or boys or whoever because uh, they'd want to know where do I want to go to dinner. I I don't know. I don't care. (laughs) We probably shouldn't even go to dinner. I don't know. And they were like, oh, just say what you want, you know. But it took a long time. It took Susan Sarandon. It took Susan to cure me. Did it also, though, so you, you meet Susan, and she blows you away with her how straightforward she is. But for you, did it take kind of practice then to start saying oh. what you wanted? Oh, yeah. You can't go straight into that yeah. stuff. No, 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 no. So, but I eased into it, and the gap between when something happened where I could have responded... Um, and when I thought of what I could have said was we're very huge mm-hmm. in the beginning and it got shorter and shorter. So now, quite often, I actually respond right then. Nice. <laughs> in the moment, you know, I'm able say to say, same. you know, somebody, somebody hugged me one time and, uh, and said, a man hugged me, good morning, on a crew. And uh, he said, this is my favorite, as we were hugging, he said, this is my favorite part of the day. I get to feel you up. Oh, and, come on. Uh, and, you know, this is a friend. This is somebody, you know. And I said, wow, that wasn't appropriate. And you should have seen his, re- he was like, what, what? But I'm a feminist. I'm, what are you talking about? And I, and I said, well, it just wasn't, you know. Just maybe <laughs> don't say that. And, uh, but I was like, look at me. <laughs> 
I said it right then. We also wanted to ask you about um, A League of Their Own because uh, one thing that you've talked about is how that film was so instrumental for you being comfortable in your own body. Right, right. So how, how did that come about? Right, which you can probably... Uh, relate with. I was sure that I must be uncoordinated, and I never wanted anybody to watch me do anything physical. But obviously, I had to learn baseball for the movie. I had to play the best baseball player anyone's ever seen. Come on! Hey, who's the goddamn manager? I am! Don't act like it, you big lush. <laughs> you tell him, Daddy. Got time, And of course, we had these great coaches and everything, and they started seeing wow, you have some real untapped athletic ability. And it was like, what? <laughs> and uh, so that really changed my life. And, and feeling like you could play a sport and do something physical with your body, like it completely changed my um, self-esteem and my self-image of my body and stuff. That had to have been a pretty powerful back-to-back, too, of going from everything that you learned from Susan Sarandon and then, you know, coming into, like, your physique with League of Their Own. I mean... Yeah, that was quite a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, to do those movies back-to-back was extraordinary. And Kristen, it really seemed at the time that Gina Davis was breaking the leading lady mold. I mean, here was this gorgeous, hilarious star going on crime sprees, playing sports, and raking in all that box office dough. Yeah, everything was coming up Gina, and it was supposed to keep coming up Gina and more rad women on screen. At least that's what folks thought was going to happen. When Thelma and Louise came out, we were talking about the press. There was some negative press, but mostly they said okay, this changes everything. This movie is a big hit. It's going to change everything. There's going to be so many more female buddy pictures and female road pictures or something. And, uh, and then League of Their Own, next, they said, this changes everything. There's going to be so many female sports movies now because of this movie. Just wait and see. And I'm like, hot dog. I'm waiting and seeing. And then, no, eh, it doesn't, doesn't really happen. Yeah, Caroline, it took a literal decade for another female sports movie to come out with Bend It Like Beckham in 2002. Meanwhile, Gina was pivoting to action. She starred in one of my favorite movies of all time, Long Kiss Goodnight. She was also a pirate captain in Cutthroat Island. And a couple years later, she ended up winning a Golden Globe for her role as Mackenzie Allen, who's the first woman president in the ABC show Commander-in-Chief. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to take the oath of office. The president of the United States. But despite her determination to portray these strong female characters and really break some gender roles on screen, Hollywood just wasn't terribly interested in seeing a woman, and a woman over 40 at that, doing it. So she goes through kind of a dry spell, but as this is happening... Gina Davis starts watching kids' TV and films at home with her young daughter. And this gets Gina's wheels turning about gender representation on screen, but in a whole new way. More on that after the break.
I was at the Sundance Film Festival a couple of years ago, and they seated me next to Robert Redford at this luncheon, and we're, we're talking, and then he says, I hear that you've started your own film festival. And I say, well, yeah. He says, you know, when I, when I started mine, uh, everybody was like, what are you doing? And this is crazy, and why are you having it there? And it was, you know, I think maybe we had like 100 people at the first one, and I said, we had 35,000, but, you know. But yeah, I agree, yeah. We're back with Gina Davis at the Bentonville Film Festival, which, by the way, y'all, is the only film festival in the world to offer its winners guaranteed distribution, which is a really big deal if you want to get your film, like, actually seen. And that guarantee is part of righting the representation wrongs that the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media has researched. In 2014, her institute released the report Gender Bias Without Borders. It was the first ever global study about gender and media in film. One of the most gutting stats they found was that less than a quarter of the films they studied had a woman lead or co-lead. Less than a quarter! Gina didn't just notice these gender disparities in her research. Like, she noticed this on set, too. And, inspired by old Susan Sarandon, she started speaking up about what she saw. In the moment. Yeah, so one day, for instance, on the set of Stuart Little, of all places, Gina notices an opportunity. So they're filming a scene in a park at, like, a kid's remote control boat race, and the assistant director is there, like, getting all the kid extras in position. And he would, he would pick a little boy out of the crowd and have him sit by the water and then give him a remote. And then he'd pick a little girl to stand behind the boy. And then they went down the line, boy with remote, girl behind, as a cheerleader or whatever. So I said, what do you think about switching and giving half of the remotes to girls? And he was like, oh, yes, yes. He was so embarrassed that he didn't think of it himself, you know. And, of course, went and switched it and... Uh, and I was like, don't, don't be embarrassed. Nobody thinks of this stuff, you know. It's so unconscious that I, I probably 10 out of 10 people would have done the, the exact same thing. But uh, that was even before I had kids. So that really, I, I was starting early, yeah. It seems like once you kind of became aware, too, of the gender dynamics, you kind of couldn't unsee it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. And, and I ruined movies for people. Uh, <laughs> People say, I meet people like years after they heard me speak and they're like, thanks a lot. I can't watch a movie anymore without counting the female characters and it, I, I can't enjoy it anymore. My kids also, from when they were really little, um, I always watched whatever they were watching with them and I would be their sort of media literacy <laughs> educator and so I would, I would say as we were watching, I'd say, did you notice there's only boys in that group? Don't you think, do you think girls could do what those boys are doing? And why do you think she's wearing that if she's going to go rescue somebody? <laughs> Good question. Just like that. And so they also, you know, now, especially if we're in a movie theater or something and I see something that needs to be, and I even just start to lean over, they say, I, yeah, mom, I, got, I saw there's not enough girls in that scene. That's right. Yeah. Well, what, you mentioned having this, like, sort of like, hey, did you realize all the boys have remotes? What convinced you, though, that I have to go beyond just, like, conversations and get my hands on data, like, hard numbers? Right, right. Uh, that wasn't my intention at all um, uh, originally, but once I had my daughter and started 
showing her preschool shows and G-rated videos and things like that, and I noticed that there were profoundly more male characters than female, and what was showing the littlest kids. I first just brought it up with people in the industry. I figure I have meetings all the time uh, with directors or studio executives, whatever, and, and so I'd, I would say casually, you know, have you ever noticed how few female characters there are in movies made for kids? And every single person I talked to, male or female, said, that's not true anymore. That's been fixed. And we helped to fix it. We care about that here. You know, we're very conscious of this. And we made, very often they would name a movie with one female character as proof that gender inequality was over. So that's when I said, how is that even possible? How do they not know what they're making? And that's why I need the data. Yeah. How surprised were you to discover that no one had been collecting that kind of data? Well, that was the other thing. Oh, yeah, at first I didn't intend to do the data. I was just going to find the data that, that was already done. And there was none on, on kids' uh, on-screen representation. So, so then I did it and took it too far. But... Uh, <laughs> I mean, this good. seems like a good place to take it. It's a good, I, yeah, <laughs> it's a good, a good thing to do. Uh, one thing that we were curious about with the work you are doing with the Institute is uh, partnering with Google and the GD quotient. Am I saying that right? IQ. IQ. Yeah. Um, which is fascinating because we hear all sorts of stories about AI and maybe the negative implications of it, but this seems like such a cool application. Yeah, so Google gave us a big grant to develop software that uses voice recognition and face recognition. And so now, not only do we know how many female and male characters and people of color are there, but how much are they on screen and how much do they talk? Mm -hmm. It's like a high-tech Bechdel test. It is, it is, yeah, yeah. And now we have even further developed um, a tool that we're calling Spell Check for Gender Bias, which uh, shove in the script and it'll spit out so much information. It will tell you how many characters are, how how long they talk, but it will also tell you what's their power status, rank, and uh, what kinds of words do people use to describe another character. When we looked at um, 10,000 advertisements, we found that though men use much more intelligent words and multisyllabic words, and the women mostly used one-syllable words (laughs) in these ads. And 1% of the female characters were um, funny. Just one? Just one. Oh, we also found, that was somebody else just told me that research, that, that wasn't us, but uh, we found that there were twice as many male characters who were on screen four times as much and spoke seven times as much as women. And ads are mostly aimed at women. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, women have 85% or something of the buying power, so. But y'all have also found, though, that movies that have female leads are just earning money hand over fist. What's the percent? What's the difference? Well, uh, the last several years, movies starring a female character have made significantly more. And in in, uh, 2017, it was 38% more at the box office. So it's, you know, it's all changing. (laughs) Are Are people listening to those numbers? I don't know. You know, it's a mystery 
But I, I must point out that Disney makes more movies starring a female character than not. Hmm. And that's completely different than everybody else. And also, they just announced that 40% of their upcoming directors are women. And the industry average is 4%. So they just decided we're doing this, and they did it. So they can yeah. do it. And it, it honestly seems like that's what it takes, someone making the conscious decision. And it honestly feels like you and your initiative are sort of the, the force behind saying, hey, let's, let's make these conscious decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm curious like a little bit about the conversations that you have. How do you call people in, so to speak, versus calling them out? Okay, so what we do and what I do and have from the beginning is I wanted the data so I could go directly to the creators. I don't have to educate the populace. I just go to them and and present it in a very private and collegial way. Bet you didn't know this. And I never bust anybody publicly ever. And they are incredibly receptive to it. First of all, they're utterly shocked. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, why are we doing that? We should, we should do better. And so I think that's made a difference. And it, it was important to me that I had a good relationship with everybody because we want them to take our advice. We work very closely with every studio and production company in town and, and they all um, want us to come back over and over. And that, that's great because, you know, you have to really implant this uh, and, and saturate Hollywood with this message. So one uh, a related kind of vexing question, it seems, uh, that's kind of haunted you through your career is the, have things changed for women in Hollywood? Are things getting better? What is, is there a question that you wish people would be asking instead? And should we be asking that question to men? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Uh, what should they ask me instead? I don't know. I don't know. I never thought about it. Maybe we can respond along the lines of like, this is clearly not fixed. Nothing is fixed. This is just the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's know. just the beginning, yeah. It's just, and it sounds like we're about to start a or, song. Or I could say, no, it's not fixed, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> And this has been Gina Davis. (laughs) So I just want to say thank you so much to the Bentonville Film Festival. And of course, thank you so much to Gina Davis. Well, Caroline, how does it feel to have met uh, one of your childhood idols? Um, I already expected, like, the best, you know? But the fact that she was so kind and so welcoming, like, I was so nervous on that stage. But Gina just, like, has this way. Maybe one day y'all will find out, like, if you're ever on stage with her. But, like, she has this way of just, like, looking at you in your eyes and letting you know it's okay. It just felt so comfortable. So what was it like for you meeting her? Okay, well, uh, Caroline, I actually met her, as you know, by myself, because I think you would run to the bathroom, Mm -hmm. and our, like, PR minder (laughs) fetched me and was like, do you want to go meet Gina? And I instantly started, like, sweating in my armpits. Yep. And I followed her to the backstage. There she was, this just statuesque, lovely woman, I say hello, she says hello to me, and then I'm smiling, and she goes, oh, hey, 
You got lipstick just <laughs> right on your right on your teeth. And when I say it was the kindest yeah. lipstick teeth like I call out, it. I mean I really appreciated it. And you want to know what gave me a thrill? Hmm. Was her seeing the gold middle finger unladylike logo and her eyes lighting up with joy. Yeah. I mean, she's a she's a spitfire that one. She is. Love her. But okay, y'all. What are your favorite Gina Davis roles and moments? Did you know about her Gender in Media Institute, which is so badass? Head over to our private Facebook group and share away. We've got a thread in there about this episode, so just hop in and join the convo. And you can email us at hello at unladylike.co or find us on all the social media at unladylike media. Grab some unladylike merch while you're at it and you can sign up for our newsletter where you will get actually good news about women in the world delivered to your inbox every Wednesday. It's all at unladylike.co. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Johnny Stewart, Kirby Allison, and of course the amazing Gina Davis, her institute, and the Bentonville Film Festival for including us. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. And next week... Hello, everybody! Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to the White House. Uh, Thank you, Sana, for your incredible work. Okay, so we don't have Obama... But we do have VP of Content and Character Development at Marvel Entertainment, Sana Amanat. And y'all, if you can't wait until next week for more on Ladylike, sign up for Stitcher Premium. We released an entire pep talk series there featuring some of our favorite rad unladies like comedian Nagin Farsad, podcast besties Amina and Anne from Call Your Girlfriend, and Alicia Ramos from Girls Night In. Tomorrow, we've got a pep talk from model and activist Rain Dove about breaking the gender binary. Go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code unladylike for a month of free listening. And make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Yes. Oh, my God. So Gina Davis has been in, like, every movie that's good. She's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) She was in Schindler's List. She was an English patient. She was even one of those rose petals in American Beauty. Oh, my God. She was the best rose petal. Stitcher. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find ten. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Now Prince donated it, this guitar. <gasps> I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.